You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, now formerly of ESPN.com, so that part's different. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Did you make any major life changes? Did you uh, quit your job or like, get divorced? I'm fine. Yeah. I'm sitting over here still gainfully employed. Good. How about you, sir? I No, I'm currently unemployed. I've been watching a lot of daytime TV, The Wheel of Fortune, nice. the, uh, All My Children. I don't know. Is that still on? That sounds I like assume it is. Sounds like a thing that that would be on television. Yeah, the uh, I guess the word is out that I have quit ESPN. The word is out because you put it I out. I put it out, yes. I, I left so, ESPN today. Uh, I can only assume the plan is step one, quit your job at ESPN. Step two, begin riding the rails. Yep. Step three, uh, become a mysterious stranger uh, in some small town in America where you will soon be embroiled in a mystery, perhaps accused of a crime you didn't commit. Just carrying my belongings wrapped up in a bandana tied to a stick. Yeah. What are those called? Like a, uh, there's a name for that, like a bindle, bindle stiff or something like that. Well, you're like going to need to figure that I'm out. I'm going to have to figure that out. Plus come up with a, with a nickname for myself like Fisheye or, or uh, Limpy. I'm really excited for this new phase of your life. I am too. I am too. I suppose that the uh, that the CME audience will want answers, uh, and so I present myself to you to explain myself. Well, let's here let's we start on. with you. You quit your job, just yes. up and quit. I suppose that it probably seems that way to some. Yes. <laughs> well, maybe that you should start by explaining why you quit your job. Well, I suppose to people who who know me personally, it's it's been a long time coming. Actually, it's been kind of a uh, long slow grind to the finish over there at espn just because when i got hired during the uh summer of 2011 summer of love as i remember the summer of love it was uh it was with the understanding that i would get paid a certain amount and i would have a certain set of responsibilities and i'd work more or less full-time uh for a full-time wage as you do when you get a job uh and for the first six months that i was there that's exactly what it was and it was uh it was pretty cool it was it was a good time but then uh just before Christmas of that year, there was a big across-the-board budget cut at ESPN.com, which uh, ended up affecting a couple of us on the MMA staff a lot more than it had affected, I think, other people who covered other sports, just because our staff was so small that those budget cuts really uh, fell on just a, just a couple of people. Um, and ever since then, uh, it's it hasn't been a great situation. I hung on for as long as I could in the sort of vague hope that that things would get better, but... They actually got a little worse, actually, over time. And so uh, this past month, I got contacted by a couple of other organizations uh, about jobs. And I think at least one of those is going to work out. So I figured that, uh, you know, it was time to move on from ESPN, especially since I don't think things are going to get any better there during the next couple of months. Ooh, so that's foreboding. So that's it. That's that's pretty much the the reason. These other organizations you were contacted by. Yes. Uh can you confirm or deny that at least one of them is Notorious Street Gang, the Crips? I can because con- that's that's just out there. I'm just telling you what's out there on the internet. That yeah. Chad Dunnis is leaving ESPN to work full time for the Crips. Yeah, you know they're not looking for a, they're not relations. looking for a Don, but they've got a Capo opening, <laughs> and I think that that's a great position where I could move up uh, up the ranks. Pretty Someone quickly. who's willing to grow with the gang, because I think once the Crips get a load of my just cold blooded, I don't give a fuck attitude, I think I'm going to move up quickly yeah i have to be honest with you i've always seen you as a crip yeah anyway enough about me this week the co-main event podcast as usual comes to you in one in uh, three rounds in round number one jake shields and damian maya fight each other on wednesday in an important welterweight bout that if you stand back and squint a little bit it might look like they both have three fight win streaks and in round number two not so fast ben rothwell and in round number three, if you haven't read Chuck Mindenhall's stellar piece over at MMA Fighting about the five-year anniversary of the final Elite XC show, you should pause this and go do that, because there's going to be spoilers. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, 
Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from David Golden. He writes, Sarah Kaufman and Jessica I are going to fight each other at UFC 166. I just want someone to show this fight a little love, man. We're talking about a fighter in I who hasn't lost since 2011 and left Bellator with the fucking belt! Exclamation point. Then you have Sarah Kaufman whose only losses came to Ronda Rousey and Marluz Kunin in championship fights. This fight has more Im- title implications than the co-main event on the card. Shit, it has more title Im- implications than the co-co-main event, for that matter. So please, help me out and get- show this fight some love. You know, while we're at it, let's just show some love for the entire UFC 166 card, which by the time you get to the preliminary card on Fox Sports 1, is pretty goddamn awesome from start to finish. Yeah. You've got, uh, obviously, your main event is Cain Velasquez against Junior Dos Santos, but also on the card, you've got Daniel Cormier against Roy Nelson, Gilbert Melendez against Diego Sanchez, which is going to be fucking fun no matter what happens. Uh, you've got Gabriel Gonzaga and Sean Jordan, which I think maybe we're all a little worried about. Yeah. In terms of the... If it gets out of the first round, that one's going to get ugly. Of the fun quotient. But then you got John Dotson at flyweight fighting Daryl Montague, who's making his UFC debut and has been a guy who's on a lot of flyweight top tens, despite the fact that he hasn't quite made it to the big show yet you know the barbarian horde is going to be in the house because tim boach fights cb dollaway it's your guy and then you got nate marquardt against hector lombard and sarah kaufman against jessica i so yeah pretty awesome yeah it is pretty awesome not to mention george soderopoulos versus kj noons which is going to kick things off on the fs1 broadcast i will say i think it's a little misleading to talk about how this fight has you know more title implications than the the co-main event i mean i guess it does in the sense that daniel cormier isn't likely to stay at heavyweight uh after this fight with roy nelson and who knows what the the incredible shrinking man uh roy nelson is gonna gonna get up to you know we don't know where that guy's headed might be a lightweight for it's all over uh so okay fine I, i guess you can you can make that that argument there on those grounds but it is a pretty awesome fight especially to be stuck on the prelims uh, because Sarah Kaufman, former Strikeforce champ, Jessica I, who did indeed leave Bellator with the fucking belt. She's won seven in a row. I don't know Although, why they didn't have her drop the Bellator belt in the trash can like uh, when Alondra Blaze left WWF and went to WCW. That could still be in the works. Showed up on Nitro. Door hasn't closed on, on that just yet. Uh, it is worth mentioning, though, that Jessica I, not typically a bantamweight. Going up and wait, I think this is something we've already seen a couple times with the UFC's women's division. We're probably just going to see it more as long as the UFC insists on just having that one women's division where all the best fighters from the lower weight classes, hey, what the hell? You, why, why not you know, eat a few more sandwiches and see if you can go up there? Maybe you're, you're over, overpowered and undersized for that division, but you might as well give it a shot, man. I mean, that's kind of what happened with Rosie Sexton. A lot of these uh, female fighters who have been successful at lower weight classes uh what are you gonna do you either gotta go up and wait and fight on the ufc's terms or just sit around in your weight class like your cyborg santos uh dreaming of a day when uh we can all hold hands and be friends regardless of our weight and you know, and then you got sarah kaufman who is uh you know she lost to, to ronda rousey last year but remains i think one of the more likable uh, women in the 135 pound division. She's just, uh, you know, one of these fighters that goes out there with, without, uh, without trying to make it look pretty, without trying to put on airs. She just goes out there and, and, uh, you know, more often than not beats the shit out of whoever she's fighting. And a female fighter who rocks the rash guard instead of the sports bra, which I know you're into. We can all get behind that, I think. Uh, so yeah, I think it's going to be, uh, a good fight and an exciting fight. I think that, you hit the nail on the head in, in terms of uh, how it puts a lot of fighters like Jessica I in a tough position that the UFC insists on hanging on to this only one weight class for, for female fighters thing. You would think that they would, uh, that they would see the light and try to expand that a little bit, especially since the, all of the female fights in the UFC thus far have been so successful. Well, when you look, though, at uh, recent UFC cards where we're getting like 13, 14 fights per card, and it's because they just don't have room to – get as many fighters as they have with expanded weight classes, then you add in the women, and then every once in a while Dana White's going to freak out and sign all the tough fighters. Uh, you know, who knows what will happen with that this time. So it's one of those things where I think it's just a matter of they're already kind of at a roster breaking point that adding a whole nother division of female fighters right now is kind of a tough sell. 
I do hope that eventually we move in that direction because it seems like there's just a ton of talent at like 125 and 115 down there in the female divisions. The second question this week comes to us from Corey Weichard. He writes, earlier this week, Stephen Morocco wrote an article about how Joe Warren behaved after hearing that he was not cleared to fight. The article suggested that Warren essentially tried to ignore and circumvent a consensus medical opinion that it was not safe for him to fight due to a neurological due to neurological issues. Perhaps hearing about Leandro Souza's apparent weight cut induced death made the Warren story seem more alarming, but the prospect of uh, entering a professional fight knowing you could get like major league extra bad brain damage just seems absurd and self-destructive then again i'm not a professional fighter based on your interactions with fighters and experience following the sport how sensitive do most fighters seem about the idea that they may be permanently damaging their brain or overall health as a routine function of their profession is this a risk too intimately acknowledged is there a risk in too intimately acknowledging some of the sport's dangers? I wonder if it's difficult to focus on beating your opponent when you're worrying about your long-term health. First of all, let's just say major league extra bad brain damage. I'm going to go ahead and steal that. I'm going to add that to my lexicon. Yeah. So that, you know, hey, you're not just dealing with brain damage or even bad brain damage. Yeah, no. Major league extra bad extra brain damage. Bad the regular brain kind damage. of brain damage. Whew, don't yeah. worry about it. That just that goes not hand until in hand you with get the up job. to the major leagues yeah. of brain damage. Once you're in the major league brain damage zone, it's it's time to start reevaluating some of your choices. Uh, first of all, uh, he references Stephen Morocco's article on this, and it is worth noting. Uh, this was the uh, Mohegan Tribal Athletic Department at the Mohegan Sun in Uncasville, Connecticut, that refused to license Joe Warren. Around these parts, here in the in the Treasure State, Chad Dundas, mm-hmm. uh, you want to set up a, a fight on, on an Indian reservation, you can probably go in there with a major league exit bad brain damage and people aren't really going to say anything. Yeah, uh, no, that's true. Very little oversight. So good one for them. Of the, uh, one of the joys of living in a state controlled by a mostly insane state legislature. <laughs> Uh, good for the uh, the Mohegan Sun uh, and the the Mohegan Tribal Athletic Department uh, erring on the side of caution there with the Joe Warren thing. However, I, I did think it was also interesting how to Joe Warren, oh man, it's just these headaches. It's just this crap and red tape you got to deal with. And to the athletic commission, it was like, no, we were really concerned about your brain. Uh, and it does bring up a good question because you know you've talked to fighters about this, I'm sure, and I've talked to them where. You get the sense that they say they understand the risks and they understand all the, all the brain stuff that we're all learning as a result of, you know, contact sports like football and the research and stuff we're doing now. But it seems like they still, a part of them regard that as like, that's the stuff that happens to other people. And I think that that's probably like a self-preservation thing you have to have as a fighter. Yeah, for sure. And I think, uh, Corey Weichard might, you know, hit the bullseye here on at least part of it where at the end he says, uh, it's got to be hard to do, to focus on beating your opponent if you're worrying about long-term health. I think that that's true in a lot of different sports. Like, you know, take football, for instance, where uh, guys on the offensive or defensive line are, are certainly uh, trading their own future health in order to take care of their families. But at the time that it's happening, like, you know, you can't really think about it, man. You got to work on your blocking assignment. You know, what you're doing from from one play to the next to make sure that you keep that spot and that you didn't get this uh, major league extra bad brain damage. And then one day you get cut and you you don't have that money that you thought you were going to have. Uh, so that that I think is a good point from from Corey Weichert. And also it just brings up uh, again why it's important that you need to have quality regulation and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, oversight in this sport, because even though there is a very disparate, uh, group of fighters that we're dealing with, and some guys are, uh, very, uh, you know, focused on, on the damage that it does to their bodies. And I think we see a lot of those guys retire at a young age and an age when it seems appropriate for them to get out of the sport. Uh, so even though there are so many different kinds of personalities in the sport, a lot of the guys that you talk to who become professional MMA fighters are a little bit crazy in in the same way. Uh, and I'm not saying that as an insult. I think that it, it's just like it's a, a, a personality trait that you kind of have to have to be successful in this sport. And that's the 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 willingness to go in there and win almost above all costs. There's certainly a lot of guys in this sport that are going to go out there and compete even when they're not supposed to. It's a sort of a different offshoot of like hearing about Chuck Liddell going out and fighting with no uh, ligaments in his knee or whatever. 
whatever. You know, it's the, it's the same kind of thing. Like a guy, a guy's going to go out and fight if his knee's blown out or if his, uh, you know, if he if he's got a, a torn hamstring or maybe if he has major league extra bad brain damage. Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, you can't leave it up to promoters. You can't leave it up to fighters. You have to have some kind of oversight from the quote unquote government to come in and make sure that the, these events are being contested safely. Yeah, even if it's the tribal government that has to step in there and say, no, Joe Warren, this is not just a, a minor headache. This is actually a head ache. See what I did there? I see what you did. It was I'm a fan of it. I liked it. But that's one of the things, though, that I wonder about because I remember uh, when I was in college and just to take a bunch of philosophy classes and one of the things we would read like Supreme Court decisions at times and uh, – one of the more interesting ones I remember was uh, somebody being in a coma, and it was a uh, question of whether or not you could take them off life support. If the person had expressed, you know, this woman who had expressed to her husband, hey, if I'm ever in a coma, don't let them keep me on life support. Uh, and the idea there of informed consent, like that she had said, hey, if I'm ever in this situation, do this. But then could she have really had any idea what that situation would be like? Before you're in it. It's the same kind of thing sometimes for fighters who are, you talk to them, they're like, oh man, I'm ready to go out there to the death. I'm not worried about it. I'll, I'm going to go to war and everything. But like, they don't really know what it would be like to then be on the other side and be dealing with the consequences. They're imagining what those consequences would be like. And, you know, maybe cannot really truly be informed about the actual risk that they're taking. I mean, it's a tough question. The next two uh, listener mail males. Are, uh, they go together. We're going to read them together. Um, the first one comes from Joaquim Kalantari, who emails the show a lot. Uh, he, one of the friend of the podcast type individuals, he writes, last week you called on quote unquote smart people to come up with a solution to the weigh-in problem. And a lot of people, by the way, seized on that, it seems, and took up that challenge. Yes, they did. That's why we're going to read these two together. Uh, Though I take offense to your exclusionary approach, I'll give it a go. How about instituting a, quote, contract signing weight? When you sign a contract to fight at a certain weight, you can't be off that weight by more than a set allowance. That allowance could possibly be reduced for, quote, short notice fights or variable for different weight classes, such as if you sign a contract to fight at 205, you may not be heavier than 235 at the time of signing the bout agreement. And if there is less than three weeks until the date of the fight, when you're signing the bout agreement, your contract signing weight may not exceed 225 pounds or something. The contract signing weight could be administrated by a notary public or, or an ordained man of the cloth or something <laughs> as to put additional strains on the various as to not put additional strains on the various athletic commissions, limited resources. And judging by my grammar and spelling and shit, there ain't no way I'm even smarter than Ben. So suck it, snobs. Wait, what? I don't know, man. That, that end part seemed pretty weird. Somehow uh, a burn on me? Yeah, let's just, we'll just go on. Uh, the second one is from <laughs> Mike Moore, who writes, Last week you challenged people, quote, smarter than you to come up with a better way to regulate weight cutting. Well, I don't pretend to be an authority on it. I had an idea. Why not make the fighters weigh in a week ahead of time, four or five days ahead of the final weigh-in, or whatever the normal amount of time is that they typically show up to the arena for, or to the area of the event and set a percentage that they must be within relative to the final weigh-in limit. I think that a percentage makes sense as maybe 10 or 15 pounds would mean a lot more or less when comparing a flyweight and heavyweight. If the fighter is outside the tolerance limit, when they can still, then they can still fight, but they forfeit the normal amount of the fight purse and simply have to make the weight, which is X percent. I can't believe you're making me read these, man, which is lighter than what the, than what they weighed in at on the preliminary weigh in night. I'm sure there isn't going to be a perfect solution, but this feels like something that could work in the real world with minimal downside thoughts. And Hey, let's point out, you know, in different States, there are different rules for weigh ins. Some States do two weigh ins where you weigh in normally like you would on a Thursday prior to the event. And then you, and then you weigh in the same day, uh, as the fight. And that's kind of something that both these emails are, are getting at. Obviously, the first one takes it to a little bit more of an extreme. Uh, the second one from Mike Moore, I think that the problem is if you're going to weigh guys twice, it doesn't really stop them from doing what they're going to do. It just means they're going to weight cut twice. Right. Right. You, you know, you're going to have a guy cut weight once to make the prelim weight and then cut weight again to make whatever the allowance is that he has to be on the day of the fight or the day before the fight or whatever. That's, I think, what I keep coming back to when I hear all these different possible solutions uh, advanced for how we can change the rules to take the danger out of weight cutting. 
Because I think that it's not necessarily just that weight cutting happens or even the amount of weight that some fighters cut. It's how and like how much, how soon. You know, that I think is where the danger comes in. It's not so much that, you know, hey, this guy cut 30 pounds for this fight. I mean, if he cut 30 pounds over a couple of months, he can do that relatively safely. If he tried to cut 30 pounds in a week, you know, that that's where I think you see the more damaging weight cuts. And that's not something you can necessarily regulate away because even if the guy – sometimes it's an issue of short-notice fights where the guy only has a week's notice and has to get down on the weight, uh, needs the money, so he's going to take the fight and think he can make the weight. But sometimes it might be just that, like, you know, the guy got way off his diet, uh, he got too heavy, and he ends up having to do it at the last minute even if he had plenty of time. Like, I don't know if you can necessarily get rid of that stuff uh, without making – the weigh-in process just incredibly complicated, and that's where you have to bring in men of the cloth or whatever to, to weigh everybody in at home. I just don't know. I mean, especially because I've heard that suggestion that something that New Jersey had done for boxing matches before was weigh the guys 30 days out, 7 days out, and then the day before. But again, what stops them from cutting weight for those weigh-ins too? I mean, I, I think it, you have to eventually rely on uh, the fighters and their coaches to make sure that they're doing this shit safely. Because otherwise, like, weight cutting is something that just always is going to happen behind closed doors. It's it's going to be a tough thing to regulate that way. And unless they're actually taking diuretics, it's tough to tell how they went about cutting that weight. I mean, I, I just don't know how more rules are necessarily going to fix the real problem here. Yeah, and, like, let's – I don't want to come off like I'm a weigh-in apologist because I do think that there's a lot of uh, – unhealthy bad stuff that happens for these weigh-ins and I do wish that there was a, a really good solution that I felt like would make it safer for everybody because I would be in favor of that but uh, you know like these two emails point out I think that if you get in a situation where you're going to require more weigh-ins then I think you actually make it more dangerous because yeah. dudes are doing more than one weigh-in and the, the real you know the good thing about MMA is that in theory guys are only doing weight cuts you know once every two or three months which which puts it in a different ballpark than like you know, if you're a college wrestler where maybe you're doing, a, you know, a weight cut every week or something, or, or I don't know. And you're probably not doing as severe of a weight cut. Absolutely not. But That's uh, something that Phil Davis had said that before that hey, when he was in college and had to weigh in way more often, he couldn't afford to get off his diet. So the weight cuts weren't as extreme. In MMA, you're doing it every three months. Uh, so, yeah, you, you may cut, balloon up a little more. Yeah, you're cutting more weight, but you're not – you're not constantly putting your body through that uh, that process of like of of constantly dieting, constantly trying to lose the weight like you would be doing if you had to do it every week. Uh, and hey, you know what? If we could come up with a thing where we were like, look, no one gets to cut any weight. Everybody just has to go out there and fight at their natural weight and fight dudes their own their own size. I would be into that. The problem is. Like, think of the heaven and earth you would have to move to get this sport or any combat sport to do that because promoters aren't going to be in favor of it because you just rearranged their entire sport. Suddenly, John Jones can't be the light heavyweight champion anymore. Uh, no one could probably be the champion of their of their weight class. And, uh, you know, think of the... Uh, of the uh, administrative red tape and the we how the wheels of quote unquote government would have to to shift in order to make that happen. So like I would totally think that that was a cool idea, but good luck ever getting it done. Yeah, that's another thing is that we have to take into account the the practical concerns. And I feel like some of the suggestions for how to fix it uh, actually do, like you alluded to, make it less safe. Because if, if you're doing the thing where okay, we'll weigh the guys in right before they get on the cage, or right before they step in the cage on fight night. It's not necessarily going to make everybody change what weight class they fight in, and it's not the guy who is going to cut, who's going to think in the first place that he can cut thirty pounds in a week, either because, you know, he thinks he can do it or he needs that fight, needs that money. Uh, he's still going to tell himself, okay, well, what, and I can't, can't be over a certain amount of, of my body weight over that on fight night. Fine, I just won't rehydrate as well. He's just going to take that risk, I think, in most situations. You know, if he's the kind of guy who already thinks he can cut 30 pounds in a week and not suffer for it, uh, he's just going to do himself further disservice by not rehydrating all the way afterwards in order to be able to hit that fight night weigh-in. And I don't think you'll see you know, better performances out of guys if you're doing that fight night weigh-in stuff. Uh, you know, I, I just think it's one of those things where the dangers of those extreme weight cuts are, are relatively... Uh, isolated to guys doing it a lot in a little bit of time. And that's when you need, you know, if not the fighters to look out for themselves, then their coaches uh, to be kind of held responsible. And one of the things that uh, I agreed with Dr. Johnny Benjamin about was that, 
that need to have somebody other than the fighter held responsible, whether it's the coaches, the promoters, uh, the athletic commission, somewhere up the chain, um, so that if these guys are making these drastic weight cuts at the last minute, there's somebody you can go to and like, hey, why did you let this happen? I, I think there's a place for something like that. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern, an idea for how to do better weigh-ins for the podcast in the future, you can get a hold of us by going to the website, comainevent.com, and clicking the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the Podcast. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, Dana White says that Jake Shields versus Damian Maya is, quote, a big fight and, quote, a fun fight, and that the winner will be in, quote, a good position in the weight class. Technically, I suppose that's true, because if we use a slight trick of language, we can say that both guys are undefeated during their last three fights. Of course... As we all either may or may not remember, Shields had his UFC 150 win over Ed Herman overturned because he tested positive for something. Now, exactly what, we don't know, and we probably never will. Do you want to catch the people up on the ins and outs of that story? Maybe a little refresher for those of us who can't keep track. Well, actually kind of a weird thing because uh, he did test positive for something uh, and reached a... uh, some kind of a, a settlement with the Colorado uh, Athletic Commission uh, about what exactly his punishment would be, but that that part of that settlement meant that nobody could talk about what it was. And I did a story on Jake Shields uh, a little while back, uh, and it was something he said that he really wanted to talk about because he didn't like the perception that people might just assume, like, well, you were doing steroids, uh, which he was adamant that he was not, uh, but said he was not allowed to uh, talk about it because of the terms of that settlement. So, See, that's really weird it because is weird. Uh, when you get into that kind of situation, it makes it seem even worse for Jake Shields. Like, we're just going to go ahead and assume the absolute worst about whatever it was that he tested positive for. And Must have been that Incredible Hulk stuff. It, yeah. Gamma rays? <laughs> yes, gamma rays. Uh, it seems... Uh, weird and and frankly kind of hard to believe that he could get ensnared in a deal with the uh, was it Colorado State yes. Athletic Commission where they would reach some settlement, but he wouldn't be able to talk about the thing that he tested positive for if he really wanted to. Like that, that just seems odd to me. And and knowing full well that it's going to make him look even worse in the court of public opinion if he doesn't talk about it, it seems like he should talk about it or would if he wanted to. Well, it's almost like when Shane Carwin showed up on that list of people who had uh, who had allegedly purchased items from that online pharmacy that where a lot of professional athletes and dudes like Kurt Angle were buying steroids and everybody was like, oh, that seems bad. And Shane Carwin's camp was like, yeah, we're not going to address that now, but we will address it in the future. And then he never addressed it. It was like the worst possible thing to do because we kept being like, well, you said you were going to address it. So until you do, we're just going to assume every time you talk that. You're going, that's what we're going to be thinking about. Like every time you make a public statement that with Jake Shields, now we're, we're going to be like, well, what did he, it seems like we would want to know what he tested positive for. So it's too bad that he can't tell us. It's not, I mean, you're right. The, the Carwin one is worse. This one with Shields isn't going to, going to, I don't think dog him quite as, as bad, especially if it seems like we're just going to forge ahead if we're the UFC, as though his win over Ed Herman is still a win, which it kind of seems like what we're doing. Well, it seems to me like the way bigger issue for Jake Shields is how some of these fights have looked. Because for one thing, Jake Shields, like one of MMA's more notorious vegans, uh, it is a little hard to imagine that guy who is that adamant about what he put in his body is, is injecting needles in his ass. Uh, so, and you know, you look at him and you don't think, well, that's a guy who has to be on something. Uh, so, you know, I feel like that's not a, a huge issue for him. He can put that behind him, but some of these fights, well, the Ed Herman fight, if you remember, not the most exciting fight you've ever seen. Neither was his, uh, uh unanimous decision win over Akiyama. Uh, the split decision win over Tywin Woodley in Winnipeg, uh, was just kind of painful to watch, uh, 
now he has to go down to Brazil and fight Demian Maia. It's one of those fights where you could see how this fight could end up being truly awful. Like there's a, there's a lot of potential for that here. Personally, I'm into it because I like to see two guys with, with great jujitsu go at it and figure out, you know, who can actually do what he wants in there. And, and who knows, maybe they'll get into some terrible, terrible stalemate and it'll be painful for us to sit through. But I'm, I'm weirdly looking forward to this one. Yeah, I am too. I've, I feel like it's a fight that hasn't gotten a lot of buzz. I think for that reason that you just, just mentioned, uh, you know, not to mention the fact that we're doing it on a Wednesday, that it's in Brazil, uh, and that, that Damian Maya seems like he's established himself as a legitimate contender at welterweight. But I would also have a hard time saying that he's a welterweight contender that anyone is like truly jacked about, you know, uh, he's, he's got a few nice wins at the weight class and we're all like mildly interested to see what he could do against the upper F echelon of 170 pound fighters. That said, we're not beating the door down to like to get him into a into a title fight. Then, like you said, you've got Jake Shields, who's had a, a bunch of really tepid performances and has had some some losses in the UFC and is still sort of trying to put his image back together from all that. Uh, really, kind of a rocky road for Jake Shields since wrapping up the Strike Force era when he had put together several nice wins in a row, you know, beat uh, what I guess you might describe as a sort of disinterested Dan Henderson back in 2010, where uh, it sure looked like Dan Henderson was going to knock Jake Shields out in the first round. But then when that didn't happen, Henderson sort of opted for it. Ah, fuck it. Gave it my best shot <laughs> uh, strategy for the rest of the fight. Um, so, you know, he, he had a, a bunch of nice wins to close out the strike force career, then comes into the UFC and, and since then has had mixed results. Obviously his father passed away, uh, which, which is, you know, obviously terrible and kind of adds insult to injury really with, uh, with the, the rough road that he's had, but no, you're right about the, the actual matchup. I'm kind of into it. Like if you like a little bit of nuance in your MMA fight, I think this is, uh, this is a good matchup. The thing is though, with Jake Shields, like you mentioned, you know, he ended that, that strike force run uh, on some some positive notes but what he's had what six fights in the UFC now and has yet to have anything where he emerged out of there where everybody going all right Jake Shields clear win for you looking good the the hype train picked up some, some steam there no it just hasn't happened at all even when he wins these fights you know he won that close one over Martin Campman to set up the the title shot title shot against GSP uh, and since that, it's just been really close decisions where, like, the kind that Dana White immediately jumps on Twitter with all caps and is like, that fight sucked. You know, when when you have those kind of fights over and over again, you got to – either you got to do the thing where you are just adamant that everyone who thinks your fight sucks is wrong and an idiot and doesn't know, can't appreciate the real beauty of martial arts, or – You've got to be the guy who's like, all right, well, I understand. i got to make my case to the fans, and I'm going to do it this time. This is the time I'm serious. I'm really going to go out there and do it. Seems like we've heard more of the former than the latter from Jake Shields. Yeah, and if anything, maybe just being a little bit too middle of the road about it. <laughs> like, yeah, like, like even if you were just like more of an asshole about it, it would be easier for people to get into it. Uh, well, now he draws Damian Maya in Brazil, which seems like a little bit of a tough draw. Although you got to say that's sort of been Jake Shields thing over the last couple of years is fighting guys on their home turf. He fought uh, and beat Akiyama in Japan. And he fought obviously and lost to George St. Pierre in Canada. Uh, so now he draws Damian Maya down there in Brazil and <laughs> where UFC, uh, the, the Brazilian arm of the UFC production team put together what has to be considered maybe the most awkward uh, bit of pre-fight promotion in history where they had Jake Shields and Damian Maya interview each other on top of a building somewhere in Brazil. And it was just, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard, man, just two guys just trying to be excruciatingly nice to each other as they interviewed each yeah, other. See, that, and they clearly weren't ready for it. And they clearly <laughs> did not know that that was going to be something that they had to do, which, you know what? If you come to me with just the blanket idea, these two guys are going to fight. We're going to have them interview each other. I could see being like, oh, okay. Yeah, that seems interesting. But I mean, come on, give the dudes a couple of days to prepare. Let them get ready. Yeah, my first question is which two dudes? And see, even if Jake Shields, like imagine if he went down to Brazil and started talking about all the sweat hogs down there who didn't understand, couldn't appreciate the beauty of his fighting style. Just, just Rick Rude style? Yeah. You know, something. Because we see this sometimes. You see it like when you're 
doing the backstage during the prelims at one of the UFC events where they bring those guys in there. And you'll see all the time these guys who have like boring fights. Everybody is clearly displeased with the fight. Dana White's on Twitter talking about how much it sucked. And then the guys show up back there like, what? Wait, you guys didn't like that? I thought that was awesome. Did you see how I just dominated out there? Yeah. Totally followed my game plan and kicked some ass. I thought it was a clear win for me. Pretty awesome. We're going to go to the bar and party now. And it's like they were just completely oblivious to everybody else's viewpoint on their fight. And that seems to be kind of like Jake Shields' thing. Like, even after the Tyrone Woodley thing, like he you know, didn't seem to realize that, A, it was as close as it was, and, B, nobody really enjoyed watching it. I, I mean... How long can you keep doing that, especially in the current UFC climate? I would say one more loss, which is one of the <laughs> things that's more interesting about this fight. Let's say a few words about Damian Maya before we do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Uh, and then move on to round number two. So here's here's what Maya has done at welterweight. He beat uh, Dong Young Kim by TKO due to injury. Then he came out and neck-cranked Rick Story in the first round at Squeezed UFC the 153. Blood right face. And then he beat... Beat really just kind of beat the crap out of John Fitch at UFC 156, opening the door for John Fitch's eventual release. So here's what I want to know, man. If if let's say Damian Maya goes out and cleans Jake Shields' clock, does that make you feel like he is any more of a welterweight contender than having seen him beat the crap out of John Fitch in submission Rick Story? I mean, to me, it seems like this is this is not quite a step up in terms of like the standing of your opponent enough for to like really establish Damian Maya as a top contender at welterweight. I guess it depends how he beats him for one thing. I mean, if you go out there and you submit Jake Shields, that would mean a whole hell of a lot to me. Or, you know, even just finish him one way or another. I think that would be legitimately impressive uh and would be the kind of time when it would launch him to that point where okay, now the next guy we have to we give him has to be a top welterweight contender. Uh, I think that it would get people very excited that they see that Demian Maya really is going, like has went through his I'm a jiu-jitsu guy who learned boxing phase and then came out of that and said, oh yeah, but I'm still a jiu-jitsu guy. I think that that's kind of what people started to get excited about when he went down to welterweight and was doing that again. Uh, I could see that he's the one who seems like he has the most potential to really emerge from this one having gained a lot. Right. Uh, but you need a, you're saying you need a, an overwhelming stoppage. Yeah, I mean, if he just if he goes out there and uh, John Fitch's Jake Shields the way he did to John Fitch, uh, I'm not sure that's going to make the case. If anything, it hurts the case uh, in a way. But uh, you know, Demian Maya has always been one of those guys that I'd really like to see do well because I feel like he brings something that to the UFC that that high level jujitsu game that, that he really makes work for MMA uh, that we haven't seen in a while. I, I, I'm always glad to see somebody bring that aspect of it back in. Uh, especially when you got guys like Dave Herman running around talking about how jujitsu doesn't work, bro. Oh, I know that gets under your skin. Yeah. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll go on to round number two. Ben, uh, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, Chad, I'm sure you watched Bellator. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 You're lying right now, aren't you? No. <laughs> watched every second of it. I watched the one fight with the with the one guy with the tattoos and the on the uh, beard thing. Okay. Well, now I can, I can see you're telling the truth. Uh <laughs> Well, I watched it, mainly there to see uh, what the, the heavyweights had in store for us. Uh, Czech Congo got, got back on the winning path. Uh, by the way, I'm going to say maybe the worst thing could happen to Bellator is Czech Congo becomes the heavyweight champ. You know Dana White would just go off on that. Uh, but lower down on the undercard, uh, middleweight Jason Butcher claimed in his pre-fight interview that he was going to roll through the Bellator middleweight tournament like Sonic the Hedgehog. Which okay. dated, dated reference, but I like it. Dated, but but right right there in the wheelhouse of my childhood, so I was totally into it. Uh, also talked about how he had the best guard in MMA and was an awesome jujitsu dude, and then goes out there and proves to have no takedown ability whatsoever. And the most resemblance he has to Sonic Hedgehog is a willingness to roll around on his back and hope for the best. You fucking kidding me? How are you going to follow up an awesome pre-fight statement like that with a performance like that? If you're a jiu-jitsu guy, you got to have some takedowns, man, or you got to have great stand-up. I'm sick of the jiu-jitsu guys who just can't get it there. Who cares if you have an awesome guard if you can't ever use it? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking Sonic kidding the Hedgehog? me? Well, Ben, you know in the in the point of fact of you know why I, I may or may not have watched Bellator this last week, you know what I like to do of a Friday night. When my wife is out tearing up the town with her friends, closing down all the bars, 
uh, sometimes with your wife in tow, sometimes not. I like to put the baby to bed, which is not a euphemism, by the way. Uh, <laughs> put my feet up and find out what kind of small-time independent MMA is showing over on Access TV. And this week it was MFC, the Maximum Fighting Championship out of Canada, where Smiling Sam Alvey, formerly of the U, uh, Ultimate Fighter Season 16, won the vacant middleweight title. Now, Ben, I don't know if you know this or not, but Sam Alvey is married to a woman who previously won some season of America's Top Model. Uh, That's one of my shows right they, there. They seem to be a nice young couple. I got nothing against them, but I have to admit that the father in me choked a little bit when I saw them carry their four-month-old baby down the aisle on Friday night to the ring before Sam Alvey fought. Now, to their credit, they put the baby in some ear protection. No, that's fine. The baby was wearing some of those uh, some of those big earmuffs like like shooters, professional shootists wear. Uh, but are you fucking kidding me, man? Come on, get a sitter, get a babysitter for one <laughs> night. Four months. Man, I couldn't couldn't take my daughter to Target at four months here. How do you do that? Someday this this one, this girl is going to be able to tell a story about how she saw her dad win the vacant MFC middleweight title when she was four months old. So, is she going to be telling that story to a therapist, though? <laughs> That's <laughs> we'll what have, I want to know. We'll have to wait and see, man. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, Ben Rothwell, as we know, was on TRT prior to his fight with Brandon Vera in Wisconsin and seemed like, you know, he was just going to be another guy added to the TRT roles. But afterwards, we hear he was a little bit over the level of testosterone he was supposed to have, which the uh, Athletic Commission in Wisconsin was fine with letting him off with a warning for. Not so fine with that. Are you fucking kidding me? Not so fine with that was the UFC. Which, upon hearing that, stepped in, gave Ren Rothwell suspension, going above and beyond what the government had opted to do to Ben Rothwell. Yes. What's going on here, Chad? Well, it's good for starters, I think. Uh, just want to say as an aside that Wisconsin State Athletic Commission is awfully lucky that Sam Alvey decided to bring his four-month-old down to the ring with him this week, or they might have showed up in the Are You Fucking Kidding Me section of the show <laughs> instead of here just in round number two. By the way, it's Wisconsin Department of Safety and Professional Services. Okay, so they probably maybe don't even have a real athletic commission Doesn't like, seem like, like us here in Big Sky Country, who yeah. also does not really have a, a, a an athletic commission. Uh, uh yeah, I mean, I think it's good for the UFC to do this. Obviously, for a long time, I've been trying to advocate the position that what they ought to do if they really don't want TRT in the sport is to just add it to everyone's contract to put some language in there saying, you know, if you're going to fight for us, you're not going to be on TRT no matter what the quote unquote government says. And then, you know, I guess essentially just dare someone to sue them, uh, which I have a hard time believing would happen. But uh, that, that that would be one way to clean up the sport. I think another way is possibly for the UFC to get a little bit overly officious in dealing with these guys, which they did here with Ben Rothwell, which I think is pretty admirable if the uh, Wisconsin Department of Ways and Means, Weights and Measures, whatever you just said, uh, isn't going to step up and, and suspend the guy. Would they give him like an administrative warning, something yes. like that? Don't even know what that means. Uh, <laughs> if they're not going to do anything to him, then then God bless the UFC for standing up and, and suspending him for, for nine months, which is, you know, that's not a joke of a suspension. That's a, that's a significant uh, length of time for a guy of the age and place in his career uh, uh, as Ben Rothwell. Um, and so, you know, if the UFC is trying to take some steps to limit what guys are going to do with the TRT, I, I'm, I think it's a, a great step in the right direction. Well, before Ben Rothwell got this exemption, there was there was chatter, there was talk out there yeah. that the UFC had discouraged him from applying. Right. He went word ahead, on the street, you might say. Word on the street. Josh Gross tweeted about it last week, so I guess we're okay to talk about it now. Well, uh, you know, there you'd hear some rumblings about that that the UFC did not want him to do that. He went ahead and did it anyway, and then he wins his fight. Gets, gets that knockout, and then they come down harder on him than even the, the state regulatory body is willing to do that. I guess the question it makes me wonder is, is that the stance that the UFC would take with everybody? If Vitor Belfort, for instance, I mean, not that he'll 
ever find anywhere that'll let us know stuff like that again. But, you know, if somebody was like, oh, by the way, yeah, you had permission to use testosterone, but your levels were a little bit high last time we checked. Uh, do you think that they come down just as hard on everybody, regardless of standing? Or do you think that this was an opportunity to, you know, hey, we told you not to do this. Now we get the chance to punish you and we're damn well going to take it. Well, I can tell you what I hope. I hope that the UFC is sort of either, you know, maybe behind the scenes, maybe tacitly, maybe without coming out and actually saying it. I hope that it's sort of drawing a line in the sand here. I think our best case scenario is that, uh, you know, somewhere in a back room somewhere, the UFC has decided, hey, you know what? We're just going to let these these older guys that are already on TRT we're just going to let them sort of age out of the sport. Or they'll never age out because they're on TRT. Hopefully they still will. 60-year-old uh, Vitor Belfort kicking motherfuckers in the head. Okay, well, I could, I could be into that. We'll have to, I'll have to think about that for a while. But, I mean, I think that they're just kind of like, you know, the Dan Hendersons of the world, the Vitor Belforts of the world. We're going to let these guys kind of do what they do. They're not going to be around forever. They'll retire. And what I hope they're doing is really strongly trying to discourage what you might call the next generation of testosterone replacement therapy users from from going that route. Because I do think it's kind of a black eye on the sport. And I think that it's a scandal waiting to happen, uh, which which we've talked about again and again and again on this show to the point that I don't think we need to go into great detail on it anymore. But I am hopeful that the UFC is taking a stand and telling new guys that are trying to get on TRT, hey, don't do this. We don't want you to do it. It won't be good for your career. Uh, and, and maybe just like you said, this is a situation where they're like, well, we told Ben Rothwell not to do it. And now the, the, the fact that he came in a little bit over on the TRT rating ratio, uh, we're going to kind of throw the book at him a little bit for, for nine months. And if that's what happened, I got to say, man, I support it. I'm for it. You know, and that would not be an unreasonable way for the UFC to try and go about resolving this. Obviously, they seem to realize that uh, the TRT thing has the potential to be a big problem for them. I can see how they would think it would be a, the easier path and maybe, you know, a, an acceptable compromise for them to be like, all right, we're not going to go hard after the dudes who have already been on it and try and force them to get off. Um, but we are going to kind of put up the no vacancy sign on this TRT stuff. Uh, I mean, we could debate the fairness of that since, you know, a good chunk of guys still apparently get to do it. Uh, and also I could see how it would – another fighter might get the impression like, okay, well, hey, because I'm not a superstar, then I don't get to do it. The, the guys who are bringing in a lot of money, you know, Vitor Belfort down in Brazil or Chael Sonnen here in America, uh, they get to do it, right, because they are kind of favored employees. I could see how somebody might – come away with that conclusion as a UFC fighter. Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways a guy could come away with that conclusion. <laughs> That's true. Just by looking at everyone's paychecks. Like, you don't have to go into the into their medical records to figure out that some guys do stuff that's fine for them, but not fine for some other people. That's true. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, to me, this just seems like one more sign of why we should never have, in this sport, let TRT become the thing that it has. Because, the LeVar, uh, LeVar Big Johnson situation uh, in California, I think, was a, another reminder of that. Whereas the guy who says, oh, hey, I was on TRT. I just didn't tell the commission about it. Well, that man, that does not mean that you were on TRT. It means you were taking testosterone, um, which is a banned substance. Like, just, just because you got it from a doctor, if you didn't get permission from the athletic commission, you don't really get to say that you were on TRT. But it's, it's kind of prompted this gray area that now is causing what seemed to be predictable problems like the Ben Rothwell thing, the LeVar Johnson thing. Those are, are good examples of it where uh, we should have been able to see that this was going to happen when you start to allow some performance enhancing drugs for some people. Like it's just not going to stop there. And you know, it's, it's kind of a shame really because Ben Rothwell goes out and, and gets a pretty good win over Brandon Vera when he does his little berserker dance there in the in the third round and and gets the TKO. I'm sure if you asked Ben Rothwell at least publicly and were like, "Hey man, how much did TRT have to do with that TKO?" he would say zero, no, nothing. Not I just did it with all my training. I did it myself. And you know, if that's how he feels and if that's the truth, then god, it's a shame that that win is is now sort of tarnished by this this TRT uh aftermath that we've had to have and and the fact that he's now been suspended. Uh he did say during, you know, during his uh his statement about it that he had been tested weekly, whatever 6 to 8 weeks leading up to the fight. If that's true, I also think that is a step in the right 
direction that, uh, you know, either, either athletic commissions or the UFC is, is going to uh, step up and actually sh- test the shit out of these guys. Like they said, they were going to, um, let's talk a little bit about Brandon Vera though. Uh, before we, before we wrap up this round, you know, I guess you could make the case that Brandon Vera is either the most unlucky son of a bitch that he keeps having to fight dudes that are, that later test positive for something, or you could pretty easily make the case that Brandon Vera has nine lives in the <laughs> UFC because I don't know, man, is, is he going to get cut now that, that he's got two, two losses in a row and, and, uh, and three of his last four. But, uh, as we know, the one back in 2011, which is one of those three losses against Tiago Silva, that one got overturned, uh, because Tiago Silva failed a drug test. So maybe, uh, Maybe if if the Wisconsin State Athletic Commission had really gone in and, and overturned this one, made it a no contest, then you would have uh, uh, Brandon Vera at one, one, and two in his last several appearances. So it well, seems like maybe he's buying himself a little time here. I really like his response uh, in our MMA Junkie story by Stephen Rocco via text message uh, where when Vero's asked, you know, hey, what does this mean for you? Are you still a UFC fighter? Are you going to be cut and uncut, you know, because of this thing, like what happened with the Tiago Silva? His response, I haven't heard anything either way yet. That's fucked, though. Two guys now? What's really going on? <laughs> oh, that's incredible. I, I love that response. Yeah, What is really going on? Yeah, that but sounds he's like... like we made this point, though, earlier about... Uh, Junior Dos Santos, remember how it seemed like he had one opponent pulled out for when the Overeem was pulled from their fight for testing positive for elevated testosterone levels, and then he fights Frank Mir, who had permission to use testosterone. It, like, it seems like some guys in particular uh, helped highlight that case because it's like they can't get away from shit like that. That tells you something about what's going on in this sport where you know a guy keeps finding himself fighting against dudes who are, let's say, enhanced. You know what? I'm just going to throw this idea out there. New podcast. What's really going on with Brandon Vera? Wow. And instant subscriber right over here. Yeah, Me. And, and he subscribing. Could, he could just right now. talk about all kinds of topics, too. It doesn't really yeah. limit you. What's really good? Shut, shut down of the federal government? What's really what's going on? What's really going on? Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, I've stated on the show in the past that one of my true regrets is that the co-main event podcast was not around to experience the Brock Lesnar era. Now that I really think about it, we also totally missed the boat by not getting this thing started sooner so that the CME could have experienced the MMA career of Kimbo Slice in all of its glory. Uh, And as astute MMA historian Chuck Mindenhall pointed out this week over on MMAfighting.com, last Friday was the five-year anniversary of the night that shook the MMA world to its core and ultimately spelled the doom of the career of Kimbo Slice and definitely spelled doom for Elite XC. Uh, Of course, I'm talking about the night that he got knocked out by replacement opponent Seth Petrozelli live on CBS. I guess when discussing such an iconic moment in our sport, I'm just going to open this round by asking you, where were you the night that Kimbo fell? I was at home. Yeah, here in Missoula? I was here in Missoula, but it, uh, in a, a rental house. Um, and I believe uh, our, our mutual friend Smokestack had come over to my house to watch his you know, once every three years MMA event. Uh, just just to see what all the kids are talking about. Uh, and let's just say maybe not the one I would have picked for him to watch in order for our, split, our, for to, our sport to put its best foot forward there for somebody who doesn't really watch it. I don't think that one made him a fan. You don't think that that one is the one that, that got its hooks in him? No, no. Could have chosen more wisely there. Uh, the thing to me that I remember about this was that when it was initially Kimbo versus Ken Shamrock, it was this feeling of, well, Elite XC, you crafty bastards, you did it again. You found a way to not really put Kimbo at too great a risk, but also put together a fight that I'm going to have to hear people talk about for weeks beforehand. And, of course, 
you know, going to have to watch as a bunch of people act like it is the fight of the goddamn century. And then it, then it all backfired. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, that was definitely the point of view headed into the fight. And then Ken Shamrock gets the cut during, I, I guess you would call it training, even though <laughs> one of the one of the things that Chuck Mendenhall's story does is illuminate that this uh, cut actually occurred in a hotel room uh, where Shamrock was, I guess, training with this guy. And the cut occurred when he told him to just freak out on the ground because that's what he expected uh, from Kimbo if the if the fight hit the ground. Uh which I think opens a, a tiny door into how Kimbo Slice was viewed even then, at least inside the sport, and also illuminates a little bit of Ken Shamrock's approach to uh, to the to his pre-fight training, just just trying to get guys on the ground so they would they would freak out. But like you said, prior to the fight, we all thought, well, goddamn it, Kimbo Slice is gonna is gonna go out there and knock Ken Shamrock out, and then and that's gonna you know that's gonna be another step in the in the career the legacy of of kimbo uh as it turned out when he went out there and got knocked out by seth petrozelli in 14 seconds uh what do you think now because i feel like in retrospect maybe uh ken shamrock totally whips the shit out of kimbo slice maybe takes him down and, and chokes him out like really really fast i don't know man i still have a heart to just because you know ken was old by the time this fight was supposed to happen uh Maybe getting a little bit chinny, as we see some fighters do with age. It seemed like probably what was going to happen was that Ken was going to go out there, uh, try a takedown attempt, not get it, and then get knocked out. Like, that seemed like the most likely scenario. Yeah, it did at the time. I will say now I'm starting to consider perhaps writing another speculative fiction <laughs> MMA novel. What if Ken Shamrock shows up for the fight and ends up beating Kimbo Slice and then he rockets back to the top of the MMA world only to have a, a sad fall from grace later, probably with a lot of substance abuse and, uh, you know, a, a, a swimming pool full of money and Pabst Blue Ribbon cans. So what your story presupposes is... Maybe he doesn't? Maybe Ken Shamrock does not tell his training partner to freak out in a hotel room that day. A lot of good writing in this story from Chuck Mendenhall. I want to read one paragraph specifically that uh, that I think pretty well describes how Kimbo Slice was viewed prior to this knockout by Seth Petrozelli and gets to the heart of how he was able to appeal to an audience that, as, as Rich Chu or Rich Chow said uh, in, in the story, if you looked around in the crowd when Kimbo fight, fought, these people were not fight fans. So here's the here's the how Chuck Mendenhall describes Kimbo. He streamed uneasily into casual America the way the rap collective NWA rolled into the suburbs in the early 1990s. He was a black man bulging with cartoon muscles and a wife beater with gold teeth and an uprush of chest hair. He wore fancy do-rags and skull caps, some of which were crafted like fine doilies. His belly button was a notorious Audi. And his beard, as Elite XC, one, Elite XC's one-time manager, Rich, or matchmaker Rich Chu says, was as iconic as Chuck Liddell's mohawk. His beard was all menace, and it glistened in the sun as he went about beating hoodlums unconscious. Wow. Hoodlums. Well, you know, the thing that I thought was most interesting here was Ken Shamrock's kind of bizarre, like, the way he seemed to take the Roy Nelson, Andre Arlovsky bout being added to that card as such a personal insult. Yes. And the, there, there are also some stellar quotes in this article from Ken Shamrock, also to Mindenhall's credit. My favorite one, of course, being the one where he says, well, Kimbo didn't care, but, you know, Kimbo wasn't much of a business I man. Have, I have, you have that one? Why I have to have that, that one, one pulled up. Because especially uh, Affliction, you know, put that bout on there and Affliction paid them. So it shouldn't really be that much of a concern. It's not like they're taking Elite XC money out of Ken Shamrock's pocket. But Ken says, it was the whole idea that me and Kimbo Slice were the main event. We sold out that event before the show. Nelson and Orlovsky were not going to add any more value to this show because their show bombed in Vegas. They sold 700 tickets. They wanted to take their main event and put it on somewhere else. So they put them on our card without any acknowledgement to Kimbo or myself. Not that Kimbo cared because he's really not much of because he's not really much of a business guy. But to me, it was like a slap in the face because these guys were getting paid so much more money than me. That's pretty good stuff there from from Ken Shamrock. And then Ken Shamrock wants to wonder why people thought it was fishy when he showed up with a cut <laughs> at the last minute. It's cuz of stuff like that. 
In retrospect, though, isn't it kind of crazy that that it's only been five years? And yet when you read this story and think about Elite XC and or like watch the video of this fight, which I'm sure is still available on YouTube, it just seems impossible that someone put this on network television, doesn't it? It just seems like a another world entirely. It does. And it also seems like so much longer ago, like like at least a decade. Yeah. And to be honest with you, the really amazing thing about this story is that all of this stuff predates Kimbo Slice's like brief run in the UFC. So even after Kimbo Slice gets knocked out by Seth Petrozelli in 14 seconds, he's still able to be marketable enough that the UFC wanted to put him on, I think, season 10 of The Ultimate Fighter when it did all of the, all of the heavyweights. And then even after that, gave him a fight or two in the UFC. Yeah, that is kind of amazing when you think about it. But also, uh, that, I mean, this one I, I think we haven't touched yet on the story as it affects one Scala, Jared Shaw, yes. uh, who came out looking kind of bad in that one. Yeah, there's still a, a gif somewhere <laughs> out there on the internet probably of him uh, jumping out of his seat and yelling no. Clearly, obviously yelling no yeah. when the referee steps in to stop the fight when Kimball gets knocked down. I think he kind of redeems himself in this story, though. He seems to realize, or at least claims to realize, uh, how badly he came off there. I think the other awesome thing is that Frank Shamrock, who was going to call the fight on, on CBS, went out and got trashed the night before, uh, then jumped right up to volunteer to fight Kimbo when it seemed like, you know, Ken was obviously not going to be able to compete. Uh, and his thinking being, you know, some people saying that he offered to kind of carry Kimbo or throw the fight, but Frank saying, oh, I just figured, hey, I'm hungover. He'll have a chance. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, both of the Shamrock Brothers' quotes about Kimbo Slice throughout this thing are, are, are pretty awesome. Of course, now you fast forward five years and Kimbo Slice is uh, trundling through a half-assed boxing career where he fights tomato can opponents in places like Miami, Oklahoma, and Springfield, Missouri, and Grand Island, Nebraska. Uh, but I understand he's actually uh, making some making some waves about how he wants to come back to the to the mixed style fights. Well, I saw that that Josh Gross tweeted he had talked to, to Kimbo's guy Icy Mike, uh, who said that Kimbo wanted to come back to MMA. I I just feel like the welcome is worn out here, man. It was kind of amazing that you managed to stick around as long as you did, given the the body of work that you had supporting that yeah. and the money that you're able to make. Given the, the skill set that you had. I was astounded after the 2010 mixed martial arts retirement of Kimbo Slice when he turned to boxing. And some people were like, oh, well, now we'll get to see what Kimbo can do now that he doesn't have to worry about takedowns or wrestling or anything like that. And I always thought, man, if Kimbo Slice was good at boxing, he would have just been a boxer from the start. <laughs> yes. Like the fact that he went ahead and had six MMA fights before getting into professional boxing just goes to show you like he's not good enough to be a heavyweight boxer or else the Shaws who were boxing promoters for Christ's sake would have just done that with him instead of making him into this other sideshow that got him on national television and well, ultimately uh, spelled embarrassment for everyone. It's not so different from like, yeah, I can see how MMA fans would be like, well, no, but he could go to boxing and be successful. Just like I'm sure a lot of boxing people are like, Oh, well, hey, you know, maybe if it doesn't work out for you in boxing, you'd always go over there to that MMA stuff. They don't know how to throw a goddamn punch. You go over there, you'll be fine. All Six right. months of sprawl training, you'll be fine. Well, good stuff from Chuck Hall this week. If you haven't read it, I think you should go over and check it out on MMA Fighting. It's a, it's a, it's a nice little throwback piece there. Uh, ben, let's do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here. I'm just saying this week, Ben, that Frank Mir did the impossible when he went on Ariel Helwani's show on Monday, he actually made me feel kind of bad for him. Uh, you know, when, when he asked the question about whether or not he thought that the loser of his upcoming fight with Alistair Overeem was going to get cut from the UFC, he said, I find it hard to believe that they're going to cut Alistair to be picked up by another organization. I still think he could sell a ton of tickets. Myself, I keep my opinion to myself on me, which is a first, by the way, uh, in, in Frank Mir's uh, career. Um, I guess I would have to wait and see what I'm selling afterwards. Then he goes on to say, obviously, I have no real desire to fight for another organization. So if I were to be let go, that would be a huge step in the form of retirement. 
Uh, you know, I previous to this, I would have said that I didn't think it was possible for me to feel bad for Frank Mir, but anytime an MMA gets a fighter gets asked if, if the loser of his upcoming fight is going to get cut and he responds by saying, well, I don't think they're going to cut the other guy. Uh, that's just kind of sad, man. I'm just saying, just saying, well, Chad, my just saying, uh, I don't know if you saw on MMA Junkie, we had a story uh, about Cole Miller, uh, who said that he feels like uh, the sponsorship situation in MMA is, is starting to get kind of rough. Uh, he detailed times back in 2010 when uh, he was pulling in a whole whole lot of that cheddar just to put some logos on his shorts. Now, coming up, he's got a fight against Andy Ogle on the, uh, the unaired online prelims of a fight night event where the main card is on Fox Sports 2, which purist will still refer to as Fuel TV, uh, and said that for that fight, he'll be lucky to get about $3,500 in sponsors. Now, I understand his gripes. I understand how that could feel like bad news or just unfair to Cole Miller. I'm just saying, if you're fighting on the unaired prelims and you're getting $3,500 to put logos on your shorts, that actually sounds about right to me. I mean, some of it is going to be, yeah, the sponsor situation has changed. A lot of people don't want to pay the uh, exorbitant UFC sponsor tax. And if they do pay it, then they damn well want to make sure that they're spending their money on the guys who are actually going to get seen on TV. I'm just saying. Just saying. Maybe it's not so crazy. Maybe it's not so bad. Uh, Well, that's going to do it this week for the co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to let you know what happened from this Wednesday night fight night down there in Brazil. As for right now, we're done. We're through. We're out. So I was thinking maybe here's what we do. Maybe we record some throwback episodes of the Co-Main Event Podcast where we record one as if it's the Monday after Kimbo Slice gets knocked out by South Park What do you think? I think that sounds as bad an idea as Brandon Vera's What's Really Going On podcast. Sounds good. That's the one I want to do.